like Crystal said, we're, we're stepping in, uh, we're stepping out of our series in Luke uh, for the next four weeks, actually. Uh, but for the first three of them, we're doing this mini series in Lamentations. Um, now, with, with no shame, who here has read Lamentations before? Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's five chapters of pure joy. No, uh, it's, um, it's a really challenging book, uh, actually. Uh, and it's uh, probably one of the bleakest books in the Bible. Uh, definitely one of the most outright displays of judgment in the Bible. And, and when I came to preaching on this, uh, the first time, this is actually the second time I preached through the book of Lamentations. Um, the first time when I came to it, I tried to find someone I knew of, someone I'd heard of as a preacher who preached through the book of Lamentations. And universally, they had all preached about four verses in the middle of chapter three, or at the best, they'd done that. Uh, and at the worst, they, they just hadn't. Uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not condemning all of my favorite preachers much, uh, but... Uh, but uh, yeah, like it, it's one of those books that's actually pretty challenging coming to it. And yet, uh, what I found digging it apart, pulling it apart, is this is actually a really fruitful part of scripture for us to come to. Although it takes a little bit more digging than maybe we're used to to get to that. Uh, and so I, I'm hoping this will be a real blessing for us. Um, I suppose I wanted to say the reason we're coming to Lamentations, uh, not just to take a break out of the book of Luke, but uh, is that... Uh, this book is a book about pressing into the suffering and seeing God's purposes there, or seeing God's goodness even in the midst of suffering that we don't understand. Uh, it leads us in that. It leads us in how we do that. And it leads us in how we then uh, apply that in our lives and how that then goes out from our lives to others. Uh, and in a year with that's, that's becoming notorious for, for suffering and for difficulties and for things that people didn't expect happening, uh, for people that you like dying and for, for um, you know, pandemics is the obvious one, bushfires and things. I thought this would be a good time for us to have a look at the book of Lamentations because the Bible's not silent on the issue of suffering. In fact, it's, it's pretty noisy on it uh, and nowhere noisier than in this book. So maybe uh, Crystal's already prayed for me, but I might do a quick pray because, like we said, can't have too much prayer in a church service uh, or in your life. And then we'll, we'll get into this. Jesus, thank you uh, for your word, for the Bible. Uh, we know that every part of it is good and every part of it is given to us to instruct us, to build us up, to encourage us and to exhort us and to form us into your people, form us into the likeness of Jesus. And so we ask that that would be what you are doing today, that you would uh, build us into life, even in this challenging book of the Bible, that you would open our eyes to the truths of Scripture. In Jesus' name, Amen. So, let me ask you a question. What's the worst day of suffering that you can remember? Personal or corporate, you know, large scale or, or in your own life? Uh, maybe uh, maybe uh, there, was a, there was an earthquake in Haiti back in um, 2010. Uh, 160,000 people uh, killed, one and a half million displaced. Hello, Charlie. You know, uh, most of us, I think, I think uh, everyone who's not doing a colouring in sheet right now would uh, would remember maybe the Boxing Day tsunami in 2004. What what, a, what an astoundingly catastrophic day! I remember just just not being able to comprehend. Um, 2004, I would have been you know 16 at the time. Um, and the idea that 
that 230,000 people across 14 countries had been killed in this one cataclysmic event was, was beyond my reckon, reckoning, to be honest. Maybe it's something else. Maybe, maybe you're old enough to remember something of one of the world wars, World War II. Um, we would have a couple here who might remember that. Um, we're, we're, we're 70 million people-ish because we don't have a specific number because there were so many. 70 million people killed in one conflict worldwide. You know, maybe, maybe though, when I say, what's your worst day of suffering, what comes to your mind isn't one of these big cataclysmic events. Maybe for you, it's something much more personal. Maybe it's the loss of a loved one, loss of a, a child or a relative or, or, or what, any other of these big personal suffering events that happen. It's, it's a universal reality of people in this world that we suffer. Uh, today, like I said, we're moving into this short series on the Book of Lamentations. It's a, it's a book which struggles through the reality of suffering. And it grasps for answers and hope in the face of these seemingly hopeless situations. And we're coming to this book today and, and for the next three weeks, um, and, and I've said this a little bit, but, but we've got two reasons. One is that the Bible is good. Like I, like I prayed before, all scripture is given to us for our building up. And so it's to our detriment to ignore any part of it. But, but more specifically, um, we are a people who suffer. We are people who need to see that suffering is something that we go through and that we should have a way of going through as, as Christians. Uh, it's really important that we see that suffering uh, in, in, the, in the gospel-centered light of Scripture uh, isn't, isn't something that we're to shun or to, to hide away. Uh, it's important we see it biblically. Um, and when we do see suffering biblically, it's actually astounding. It becomes a place of fruit for us. Uh, it becomes a place where we find comfort from our God and where we're equipped as a missional people to give comfort to others who suffer, which is once again a really appropriate thing this year because we are not the only ones who have gone through any suffering this year, nor the worst of it. Now, in the early part of the 6th century uh, before Christ, uh, the sin of God's chosen nation, Israel, uh, of Judah rather, it, it was rank, it was horrific, and it was an offence to God. Um, the kings and the people had walked away from God. They were openly rebelling, worshipping idols and other gods, proudly disobeying God's commands. Um, cults and religious prostitution were, were rampant. Um, murder without remorse was a commonplace event. Uh, even their kings had sacrificed their own children, we read in, in the Bible, to false deities in open opposition to the one true God. Although when you're sacrificing a child, it doesn't really matter who you're sacrificing it to, it's wrong. Uh, and so after, after much patience, and we're talking hundreds of years of patience and discipline, God reaches the point and judges his people. The Bible tells us that the, the armies of Babylon came against Jerusalem uh, and, and the power of Judah. And climatically, they destroyed the city of Jerusalem. Uh, many were brutally killed. Many more were, uh, including the king, were, were carried off into exile and a remnant was left in the city, starving, lawless and stricken. Uh, pretty bleak situation. Uh, by all appearances, they were abandoned by God. And, and the prophet Jeremiah, who we understand to have written the book of Lamentations, uh, is in this group of people remaining in the city and he cries out to God about the suffering of the people. 
That's the context of the Book of Lamentations. Pretty rough situation, if you ask me. It, and it's a book, interestingly, sa uh, saturated in tensions. Uh, really odd tensions. Uh, we even see this in the, in the structure and the form of the book as itself. Uh, on the one hand, uh, it's, it's this uh, raw, painful account. Um, it's, it's hard to... You can't read Lamentations and not come away knowing that the, the author is feeling this. He's really going through something very hard at this time. He's clearly struggling to main, con maintain control of his emotions at times as he describes the things that he's describing. Um, now, but, but then on the other hand, in seeming contradiction to that, it's this rigidly structured book. Um, you wouldn't necessarily notice this reading through it in the English, but it's, it's intensely poetic, the Book of Lamentations, not meaning that it's not factual, but meaning that the author has forced himself into a structure in this. Uh, he's, he's, uh, the first four chapters, in fact, all five chapters to some extent are acrostic poems uh, laid out in 22 parts to the alphabet, the Hebrew alphabet. Uh, and, and that begins to fall apart a bit in chapter five. But, but uh, the impression that we get is that of a man who is overcome with pain, the pain of what's happened, uh, but who is determined to find sense in it and to find hope in it nevertheless. And so he's pressing into the pain. He's seeking God in it and hoping to find a higher purpose where he only sees chaos. And this book is, is, is filled with these tensions. It's the tension between chaos and hope that we find in this book. It's the tension between the desire for peace and the reality of suffering that we see in this book. The tension between the glory of the city in the past and the utter destruction of it in the present. And, and most prominently, most dominantly, the big tension in this book is the tension uh, of the city and the people's relationship with God uh, and, and what that is. And that one's the kicker, to, to get your head around lamentations you need, you, you have to understand that at its fundamental level, it's, it's a struggle with one big question, wrath or grace. What will God ultimately give? Judge or comforter, who is God to us now? And that's a question that, that doesn't just apply, obviously, to the people of this city uh, two and a half thousand years ago. Uh, that's a relevant question for us today. In our struggles, in our challenges, who is God to us? In our lives, who is he to us? In the end of our lives, who will he be to us? Judge or comforter when we face sufferings? Who is God to us? So today we come to the, the first two chapters. Um, and, and this is probably the most challenging part of this book to go through, really, I think. Um, here we find the beginnings of this struggle, and it's like it's like looking at an open wound, really, these first two chapters. They're, they're so raw, they're so filled with, with an acute pain. Um, in, in chapter one, Jeremiah laments the situation of the city. Uh, now, you notice we, we read out a few verses. We're actually going through these first two chapters today, but we're not going to go them in detail because there's you know, 44 verses there. Um, but, but he's lamenting the situation of the city, uh, comparing her to a, a lonely, widowed slave. Not, not a happy situation. And although it's structured poetry, reading this first chapter is um, still, still like being in a dinghy being thrown by the ocean, you know, in, in big waves. On the one side, the author cries out for God to see the suffering 
to see his people and to act, to see their struggle and to act. Uh, again and again, he points out the terrible things the invaders have done. Six times, Jeremiah calls out for a comforter in these chapters, but finds, at this point, no one. Three times in chapter one, he calls out to God to look and see the sufferings of his people. To see that they are defeated, despised, downtrodden. And the clear acknowledgement he's making here is that their only hope of escaping judgment, their only hope of a comforter, is if God acts. He's the only one who can help. The nations around them have either attacked or abandoned them, and only God is left to help. So Jeremiah cries out desperately to God for comfort. But on the other hand, he laments the fact that in, it is God who is afflicting the people. He's really specific. In, in chapter 1, verse 5, he acknowledges that although enemies have attacked Jerusalem, he says this, the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. God's done it. And not only is it God judging, but he inevitably concludes in chapter 1, verse 18, that God is right to do what he's doing. He's not being unjust. God isn't just lashing out in unwarranted anger. He's acting out of his justice, his just character, and faithfulness to the promises he made to his people. All the way back, you know, in, in Deuteronomy, um, uh, when, when God made his covenant with Israel before they entered the land, he very clearly promised blessing for obedience, but destruction and curse for disobedience. Deuteronomy 28, if you want to go and do some extra reading sometime. And although he has been patient over a great period of time and, and, and a great weight of sin, uh, he is now fulfilling the promise. So, he's, so Jeremiah is struggling with this overwhelming tension. God is the only one to whom I can cry out to for comfort. God is the one justly judging me in my sin. You see his predicament, right? Will God give his people the grace that they need or full judgment that they deserve? In the end, will he be judge or comforter? And when he gets to chapter 2, uh, Jeremiah hits, hits what we might call rock bottom here. Uh, the tension seems to dissipate there between judge and comforter as Jeremiah uh, turns into the one alleyway. He turns and faces the idea, what seems to be a reality, uh, that from all that he can see and feel, he starts to engage this possibility, God no longer loves us. He is here to judge. Now, thank heavens, chapter 2 isn't where Lamentations finishes, by the way. If this is your only week here at Gospel Church, please don't think that that's the message of the book. Um, but, but for Jeremiah, he turns to this possibility. God's here to judge. His love has abandoned us because of our sin he has to face. And only his wrath remains. The calls for God to look and see dry up when we get to chapter 2. Uh, they, they, they just evaporate. When, when you become convinced the reason for that is when you become convinced that god is here to deliver final judgment on you it very much ceases to be in your interests for god to look and see uh, his eye to be on you and instead the concept of god as the wrathful judge just fills out chapter two of this book and we just see this torrent of despair because of the action of the lord 33 times in 22 verses 
of this chapter two, he desperately recognizes that all of this suffering and pain is God's doing. Um, if you do, if you do sit down and read Lamentations one and two this week, and I encourage you, read the whole book. It's five chapters. It's not that long. Um, notice how many times in chapter two the words the Lord has or he has are used. He has done this. He has done that. He, and it's all attached to judgment, judgment, judgment. Yeah. Yeah, maybe, maybe if, we, if we read uh, a few verses of this, we'll, we'll get a gist of it. Um, listen to these words. This is Lamentations 2 from verse 3. He is cut down in fierce anger. All the mighty men of Israel. All the might of Israel. He has withdrawn from them his right hand in the face of the enemy. He has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. He has bent his bow like an enemy. Imagine those words for the, the chosen people of God. He's bent his bow like an enemy and his right, right hand set like a foe. And he has killed all who were delightful in our eyes in the tent of the daughter of Zion. He has poured out his fury like Jeremiah doesn't know where to turn. It seems there is no comfort for Jerusalem. The judgment seems to him to be final. In, in verse 13, he looks to the city and he asks this powerful question. Uh, not, he asks the question, your ruin is as vast as the sea. Who can heal you? He doesn't actually give a direct answer to that question at that time. But in the verses that follow it, he laments the actions of different people who are not the Lord. He says that the false prophets have lied to the people. The surrounding nations jeer at the people. The enemies who rejoice, and they rejoice in defeating the city. And finally, he turns his, his attention back to God, the ultimate cause of their downfall, and concludes again that, it must be God's will to destroy them. And the final note of this chapter is driven by this hopelessness. He desperately calls for the city to weep and mourn for mercy. In, in 2 verse 18, uh, he says, Let tears stream down like a torrent day and night. Give yourself no rest, your eyes no respite. This is, this is where we walk out of chapter 2. It's, like I said, fleet. And although we, uh, the book carries on with the, with the tension and with the struggle that we've started to see, and, and, and we do get to points of hope. Don't, don't lose all hope today. Don't go home and, and just weep yourself to sleep. Um, we're going to stop there for today, and we're, we're going to dwell here and see what God's saying to us here in these first two chapters. And before we go anywhere else in, in seeing how this uh, challenging little bit of the Bible applies to us, I want to I uh, quickly say... Lamentations shows us re something really significant. It shows us that it's okay for God's people uh, to struggle in suffering. Think about it. The, the prophet Jeremiah genuinely struggled with the pain and suffering around him. Uh, you can't think anything else if you read this book. And this book of struggle is by God's sovereign choice in the inspired scriptures of the Bible. He chose for that struggle to be represented in his words to us. 
It's okay for Christians to suffer. In fact, it's, I, I go even further than that. It's important that we're able to be open in our suffering when we suffer. That's a lesson we can take from this. It's often been um, the tendency, this is my observation, of Christians uh, when we suffer to cover up our suffering, to pretend that we're doing all right. Uh, when we're asked how we are, to answer with, yeah, good, in the, in, on the auto-prompt sort of way that, um, that everyone else in the world does. Uh, to feel the need to present a, a kind of blessed front in our lives, perhaps. Uh, but th that's not biblical. Sorry to say. It's, it's, it's just not what we find in the Bible. The prophet here doesn't try to cover up his struggles. And we do struggle, right? Like, like raise your hand if you've struggled or suffered. Okay, there's a few people who aren't listening, but the rest of us raised our hands. They're children. It's okay. That's, that's part of their job. Um, it's, it's normal um, for us to uh, struggle. Uh, and, and the prophet here, he doesn't try to cover his struggles, but he's open with them. And that's important because if we are to live out the purposes of God in our lives, uh, our suffer not just in our lives, but in our suffering, if we are to see his purposes play out there, we need to be open with God in our suffering. We, we really um, need to go to him, really seek answers from him, rather than just hush it down and say, no, no, everything's all right, everything's all right, until it explodes. We really need to ask him to build our trust and deal with our struggles. And on top of that, we really need to be able to suffer together, uh, not just in a, in a just me and God sort of direction. Uh, to have Christian brothers and sisters who, who, can, who we can talk to about our struggles. This is something the Bible repeatedly sees. Uh, that we need to be able to talk to Christian brothers and sisters about our sufferings because the community of the church exists to speak gospel comfort and truth powerfully into each other's lives. That's how we grow, in fact. In the book of Ephesians, Paul says it. Uh, we, speaking the truth of the gospel in love, we, we, we grow up into the likeness of Jesus. And if we cover up our suffering, then we cover our opportunity to grow as the people of God. You see. And having said that, the, the other significant question, uh, big one that, that, that everyone must ask, that we see clearly in these two chapters is, what's your relationship with God? Who is he to you? See, in a real sense, this, this world is very much like Jerusalem in the days leading up to this judgment. The Bible teaches us that every person is a sinner. Uh, I have I have turned against God, the creator of all. You have too. If you disagree, please come, let's have a chat about that after the service. Uh, Paul writes that all have sinned. And then in Ephesians 2, he comes up with another term for sinners. He calls us, we are children of wrath. That is to say that every single person is deserving of God's judgment, God's condemnation, God's wrath. And not only that, but the Bible very clearly tells us of a coming time when God will exercise judgment without reservation, when those who are children of wrath will receive what they justly deserve. It's foolhardy to ignore this fact. Like Jerusalem, God calls to us now, judgment is coming. 
wrath is coming, although not like the wrath that Jerusalem saw, funnily enough. In chapter 3, we're going to see God's judgment to Jerusalem was limited, however terrible it must might have been. But on the last day, every person found to be a sinner will be judged fully and justly, the Bible tells us. Revelation 20 says that on that final day, God will judge the living and the dead, every person who has ever been. And it speaks of the judgment as an eternal lake of fire, which in my mind doesn't come across as a pleasant piece of imagery. The, the limited judgment of Jerusalem, uh, along with events like the flood in Genesis 6 to 9 uh, and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, should remind us that there is a, a final day of judgment. They are pointers to that. A day that no one knows, a day when sinners will be judged by the works that they have done. So every person sits in a similar situation, you see, similar to the city of Jerusalem. We can echo the words of Jeremiah and say, our ruin will be more vast than the sea. Who can heal us? But praise God, right? I'm sure you know where I'm going with this. We have an answer to that question. This is good news. You see, the outworking of God's wrath should also remind us of his grace for really specific reasons, actually. The painful reality of God's just anger for sin should remind us that there is a, a, there is a comforter. There is glorious comfort for God's people. God is glorious in showing grace to sinners like us. You see, not only will God pour out his just wrath on a coming day, but, but he has poured it out. He has poured out judgment on one day in history that the destruction of Jerusalem doesn't compare to. Those are words actually worth, worth dwelling on when you think through them, by the way. Um, if, you, if you sit down and read Lamentations this week, as you read it, and it is horrific, um, take in mind there has been a day of greater judgment than that day in history so far. There has been a day. When, when we look at the, this great demonstration of the wrath of God, on that one day, we see his glorious grace. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, um, Paul writes this to the church. He says, for our sake, he, that is God, made him to be sin. Now, remember what we've, we've seen, right? Uh, it, we've seen sin is, and what we've seen sin deserves, right? Uh, link this in your mind to the, what we find in Lamentations. He made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Those words take on an extra level of graciousness in our minds when we see them in light of the book of Lamentations, when we see what sin is and what sin deserves. And, and remembering that Lamentations still is a limited expression of the judgment of sin. At the cross, Jesus took our terrible sin. And, and it's terrible judgment and gave us his righteousness. In another New Testament letter, um, John, the Apostle John, uh, not me, uh, writes, God put him forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. In case you're wondering, uh, propitiation is just a word that means a sacrifice that bears God's wrath and turns it to favor. Let me say it again. 
Jesus was a propitiation, a sacrifice that took God's anger, God's wrath for everyone who has faith in him. The wrath we see in Lamentations is for one nation's sin. And not only that, it isn't even exhaustive. But on the day that Jesus died on the cross, he was a sacrifice for every person who would believe throughout history, all of the wrath of God for our sin. Dwell on that for a moment. I know it's uncomfortable to, but think about that. Wrath that makes the destruction of this city where people were starving, where people were cannibalizing and weeping to the point of vomiting, as horrific as that is, wrath makes that look like nothing. Wrath like a lake of eternal fire poured in all of its ferocity into a single man on a single day. For us. Yet the terror of human sin and divine wrath, which we uh, see in Lamentations, it reminds us of the grace of God because it points us to Jesus. Um, God incarnate, who carried all of the sin of, of his people. And all of God's wrath that we deserved on the cross to save us. Only one factor will remove God's judgment and make him our comforter. Only one factor can. God is that factor. Only he can do it. And praise to his mercy, he has. Those who have faith in Jesus will still struggle and suffer. Don't, don't hear me saying that, that believe in Jesus and the suffering will go away. But we can have full certainty that God will show us grace and mercy. Our wrath has been dealt with. So, so I want to wrap up today and, and offer you two challenges. First, uh, if you don't have faith in Jesus, if you haven't trusted in him, uh, there is no reason why this cannot be the day. If you cannot look into the oncoming, oncoming wrath of God and honestly say, I deserve it, but he's given me so much better than I deserve in Jesus. Then believe, and you can. Trust in him. Turn away from your sin, from your brokenness, and throw yourself on his mercy. He is merciful. And second, if you have believed this truth, then it is transformative for your life if you can honestly say i know that final judgment is coming and i know that god has shown me so much more grace than i deserve then i'd encourage you to look at your life and say am i living like i believe that fact the bible says that faith that doesn't work out in action is dead faith no faith and I'd like, like to challenge you in two ways with this, which, which we will um, be coming, uh, continuing to dig into in this series, I suppose. Um, you've been moved from wrath to grace in Jesus. Your terrible sin, worthy of hell, has been wiped away by the one who took your punishment. Uh, are you living as though sin was still the dominant power in your life? Are you fighting sin with the truth that God has saved you, that you no longer sit under its power. Now, don't get me wrong. We still do sin, Christians. If you're hearing me say that you're not a Christian if you sin, then, then we're miscommunicating here. 
but but uh, we are no longer slaves to it in Jesus. Do we live like we believe this? Jesus has pulled you out of the most terrible destruction the world will ever know. He saved you with his own blood. And what's more, he has chosen to give you the privilege of sharing that salvation with others. Is my second thing. Do you believe in the pressures of today more than you believe in the reality of the coming judgment and God's good grace? Are you ready to share the truth of your faith, of the one that you have faith in with those around you at every chance given to you? I know this is a challenge, and I know this is a challenge for me as much as anyone. I understand the social pressure. I understand that the, the possible ramifications are there in our society, some of them very real, uh, some of them very physical, in the, in the workplace, for instance. But if we really believe in an eternal God who has eternal and just wrath for sin, but offers free grace to all who believe, that has to be more important to us because he's given it to us. Let's, um, let's pray together uh, for, for God to work on us, uh, to bring us to trust him more in this. God, um, like the prophet, we want to cry out to you, Lord, and say your judgment is just. You are the God who judges sin and you do it rightly. And yet we, we, we're not broken by this reality for one reason, that Jesus, you took our sin upon yourself. The terrors of condemnation will never fall on us who are in Jesus. We say thank you, Lord. And I want to pray for anyone who has not trusted in Jesus that, that this would be the day, that you would draw them out of wrath and into grace in the name of Jesus Christ. Lord, you're so good to us. Help us, Lord, to see your goodness more than we see the difficulties of today. Help us to see the challenges that come our way, see the struggles that are in our path in the light of your grace. And in seeing that, in seeing your grace, lead us to be voices for your gospel truth in every day. Yeah, Lord, we echo the words from from Luke uh, that, that uh, Dad Bill preached on a couple of weeks ago. Um, help us to be people who uh, take up our cross and follow. People who are willing to walk day by day in this life according to the truth of your grace to us and not according to the struggles that face us. And Lord, make us a people who are able to be open with our brothers and sisters in our challenges, in our struggles, and who are able to be open with you in them and who find your grace there. We pray it in Jesus' name.
Amén.